Well, good morning, everybody. Good morning. It's good to see all of you this morning. If we haven't gotten the chance to meet yet, uh, my name is Aaron of the joy of getting to be a part of the team uh, here at Wellspring. Uh, before we dive into the scriptures this morning, if you're a kid and want to hang out with some other kids, there's some folks over to my left, probably your right to the back there. They'd love to spend some time with you uh, this morning. And for the, the rest of us, we're going to continue on in our, what's going to be over probably a year-long series. We've been kind of working our way through the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, kind of taking huge chunks, looking at some of the most important and really relevant stories for God's people, Israel, and how they look or apply for us uh, today. So this morning, we're going to be back in the book of Joshua. So if you have your Bible, and I hope you do, I want to invite you to turn with me to Joshua chapter 3. Joshua chapter 3, and as you're uh, turning there, we come to a story here this morning in Joshua chapter 3 that I think is extremely crucial, not only for ancient Israel, but for us even today. See, Joshua 3 is really the, the, the transition point, if you will, for the people of Israel. They've spent generations longing and waiting for God's promise to enter into the promised land, and this is the moment. Joshua chapter 3 is the moment where they will cross over the Jordan River into the promised land. Even though they've spent a, a whole generation now wandering in the wilderness, in the desert, because of disobedience back in Numbers 13, 14. But here today, they finally get their chance to journey over into the promised land. Now, as we dive in, I want to kind of jump in right from the get-go, looking at verse 1 of Joshua 3. So if you have your Bible, I want you to invite, invite you to look with me at verse 1 of Joshua 3. The text says this. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and they set out from Shittim, or your translation might have the acacia grove. Now I want to pause right there, that, that place there, Shittim or the acacia grove, it's actually really significant. Because if you're an ancient Israelite reader, and you're kind of working your way through the Old Testament, and you come across that place, that phrase, Shittim or the acacia grove, there's red lights going off in your dashboard from the very beginning. Because you go, oh yeah, I know what happened at Shittim. I don't know what happened at the Acacia Grove. And you're like, what happened? For us in 21st century, you know, here in Pacific Grove, we don't necessarily have that familiar story in the back of our brains, which is totally okay. But if you were to flip back to Numbers 25, Numbers 25, the Exodus generation is wandering in the wilderness. They've already been told that they will have a, a whole generation to spend in the wilderness because of their disobedience in Numbers 13 and 14. But they come to Numbers 25. In Numbers 25, Israel finds themselves at this same place, Shittim, or the Acacia Grove. And it is here that Israel has one of their most epic moral failures in their wilderness wanderings. This is where they have this moment where they unequally yoke themselves to women of Baal, of, of Moab. And Israelite men have all of this kind of sexual infidelity, this sexual fallenness with the people of Moab. And they worship the, at the altar of Baal. And it becomes this really heavy moment in Israel's history in Numbers 25, where there's judgment that's unleashed, and there's consequences that have to be had. And so simply to put, this place, Shittim, or the Acacia Grove, is a place of tremendous failure and loss and disappointment. And so the, as the narrator is telling the story here in Joshua 3, they're reminding us that Israel is leaving from this former place of failure and brokenness. And it's about to, the text will say, transition or pass over into something new. So this is kind of the, the framework of this whole story. 
They're leaving this place, Shatim, the Acacia Grove, where they had this grotesque, tragic moral failure at the Acacia Grove. But now there's something new on the horizon. And look with me as the text continues. It says this, Joshua rose early from the morning. They set out from Shatim, or the Acacia Grove, and they came to the Jordan, the Jordan River. We'll talk about that in a moment. He and all the people of Israel lodged there before they passed over. Now that phrase, passed over, if you have your Bible and you can write in it, I would underline or highlight that phrase, passed over. Or crossover, it might be, in your translation. Because that phrase, in and of itself, in both chapter 3 and chapter 4, appears 24 different times in these, just these two short chapters. It is one of the key themes, the key ideas that the narrator, as he tells the story, is trying to communicate. That Israel is passing over or transitioning over into something new. So what we have here from the onset, as Israel is journeying out of the wilderness from a place of failure into something new, into the land of promise, this is a story about transition. This is about a story of shifting into something new, a new season, a new opportunity for the people of Israel. And I don't know about you, as I was thinking and working through this story this past week or the past couple weeks, this idea of transition, of crossing over, of moving into something new just really struck me. I don't know about you, but this past season has felt like a, felt like a ton of transitions. A ton of different moments and opportunities of moving into something new. Right? Especially as we enter into the fall season, whether it's perhaps you've just recently moved here. And you find yourself in a new place, in a new season, a new transition. Or you're starting some new classes or a new school program. And there's a season, there's a moment of transitioning into something new. Or for, for you, you might have kids in school. Starting school again, that whole transition back into school, wherever that might look like for you. I feel like we all have to varying degrees a level of transition in our lives. Now as we kind of work through this, the question that I have is simply this. What is God up to in these moments, these seasons, these opportunities of transition. What is God doing? What is God trying to show us? What is God revealing about himself and revealing to us in these moments? The text, though, says this. At the end of three days, the officers went through the camp and commanded the people, as soon as you see the Ark of the Covenant of, the, of Yahweh your God carried by the, the Levitical priests, then you shall set from your place and follow it. Now, I want to briefly mention and talk about the Ark of the Covenant because this is going to be extremely key for Israel and their transition, the Ark of the Covenant. Let me show you a picture of the Ark of the Covenant real quick. Now, I think we have a picture, not, not, Larry's the lost Ark. <laughs> Some of you probably just have that in your brain, right? Harrison Ford, great movie, by the way. But don't think Harrison Ford and Raiders of the Lost Ark, right? The, the Ark of the Covenant was a key piece in Israel's history. And it was part of this larger sort of structure called the tabernacle, which was basically like this massive portable tent. In my mind, I think of it as like glamping, right? In a couple of weeks, we're going to go camping with some friends. I'm all about like high-end, very beautiful, massive tent where I don't have to sleep on the ground. That's kind of my idea of camping, right? And so this, the tabernacle was this massive tent, and it was about 150 feet long by 75 feet wide. And you entered in from the east. And as you entered in and keep going into the east, so this would be to your left, right on that picture there, to the, to the, towards the, the east side of this structure was the tabernacle proper, that tent you see up there. And inside that tent was this thing called the Ark of the Covenant. 
And this Ark of the Covenant was crucial to the people of Israel, to the people of God. Because the Ark of the Covenant, very simply, it, it, it really symbolized or represented at least two really important things for God's people. The first was God's instruction or God's word. Because inside the Ark of the Covenant were the two tablets, the, the, the Ten Commandments, if you will, that were placed inside the Ark of the Covenant. And this Ark of the Covenant was, would travel with Israel through the wilderness and it would be this tangible, physical reminder that God's word or God's instruction was leading and guiding Israel through the wilderness. That it was to be at the forefront of, of Israel and their whole sort of community life. Of people anchored and, and centered around God's word. That's the first thing. The second thing that the Ark of the Covenant kind of represented or reminded Israel of was very simply God's presence. Because the Ark of the Covenant was placed inside the tabernacle in this section called the Holy of Holies. That kind of like Tim Matthew talks about it being like the hot spot of God's presence. Where God's presence was extremely potently manifested there inside the tabernacle at the Ark of the Covenant. And so as the Ark of the Covenant was kind of leading and guiding Israel through the wilderness and now will lead and guide them across the Jordan River. Israel is reminded of, yes, God's instruction, God's word, that we are to hold fast to that. We are to be looking to that. And a reminder that God's presence is with us as we endeavor into this new season, this new transition. And here, as a reminder of God's presence, Israel was also reminded of God's forgiveness to them. Remember, they're leaving a place of tremendous failure, Shittim or the Acacia Grove. The Ark of the Covenant would be the place once a year, the Day of Atonement, where a sacrifice would be offered to bring forgiveness or cleansing for the sins of all the people. And so that was the place where mercy and atonement and forgiveness was to be found. It was also a place, the Ark of the Covenant represented God's presence and provision for them. There was, there was manna to be placed in there, reminding Israel that through the wilderness, God provided for them. So the point being, all of that to say is this, you know, what seems like this odd sort of religious kind of weird piece of furniture, if you will, with kind of these poles that the priests would carry. We're like, what is so significant about that? But for Israel, this was everything. A tangible reminder of God's instruction and a tangible reminder of God's presence and forgiveness and provision. But notice what the text says next about this. This is interesting. Verse 4. Yet there shall be a distance between you and it, about 2,000 cubits. Now, just quick side note, a cubit is about a foot and a half long, so we're roughly talking about 3,000 feet. Now, if we're to be a people, if Israel is to be a people that are centered around God's instruction and God's presence, why, why on earth are they told to have this distance of about 3,000 feet between them and the Ark of the Covenant? I mean, this is like really bad social distancing before it's even a thing, right? Like, why, maybe too soon, but why are they being told to have this massive distance between them and the ark? You know, people like to talk and debate about these things, but I think that the, kind of the best angle at this is something along these lines. That for Israel, yes, God is present with them. God wants to be with his people. That was the whole thing with the tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant. That Israel, when they camped, when they actually stayed the night at places, they would camp surrounding, like in a, in, with the Ark and the Covenant and the tabernacle at the center, reminding them that God's presence was to, was to be at the center of their lives. But here, as they're journeying across the Jordan River, or about to journey across the Jordan River, they are reminded that, yes, God wants to be with them, 
but there's also to be a level of reverence and respect. The Old Testament talks about this phrase, the fear of the Lord. Recognizing that God is God and I am not. That there's a distinction there. He is creator, I am creation. And so this distance is like this, again, this tangible reminder of there is this sort of separation between who God is and who we are. And in addition to that, as Israel is kind of reminded of this distance, they're also reminded that they are not the ones leading the way. They are not the ones that are going to lead themselves through this season of transition. But that God himself is the one leading through transition. That God is the one that is going to go before them. That Israel is not to get out in front, but Israel is to follow. And I don't know about you, but in moments and in times of transition and of uncertainty, we'll get to that in a moment, I have this, I don't know about you, but have this impulse, this desire to want to have control. To want to be the one that leads, that makes the change, that sets the course of direction. And here Israel is reminded, hold on a second. No, God is the one leading the way. You, Israel, are to follow. You, Israel, are to recognize that you are not the ones in control in this moment. God is. God has been faithful to you in the past. He's brought you through the Red Sea. He's brought you through out of slavery and provided for you in the wilderness. Your job, Israel, is to follow. Your job, Israel, is to trust and to recognize that you are, you are not God. God is. God is the leader, not yourself. But then, notice the end of verse 4. Do not come near it in order that you may know the way you shall go. And this last sort of phrase of verse 4, for you have not passed this way before. Think about that phrase for a moment. Remember, this generation in the book of Joshua was at, at, at the very least, they were most likely kids or maybe not even alive at the time when they were brought out of the Exodus. This is the second generation, if you will. Remember, the older generation was to be, basically, they died out in the wilderness. And for, for this new generation, this second generation out of, the, out of the, the book of Exodus, for them, they have not passed this way before. They're about to cross over. They're in a moment, a season of transition. But for them... And for the, for the people of Israel as a whole, there is a ton of uncertainty. What is going to happen? Israel, you have not passed this way before. And thinking about moments and times and seasons of transition, how many of you have ever felt that at like a real deep level? I have never done this before. I have no idea what's going to happen next. I'm about to cross over into a new season, I'm about to take that step and move forward, but I have not been this way before. And what, what does that moment feel like? What do those seasons, those days, those weeks, those months feel like? When you know that, yes, God perhaps is leading you, but at the same time, there is a ton of uncertainty in the mix. Where you have this angst between Yes, I want to trust God. I know God's presence and his instruction, his word is leading me and is with me. And at the same time, I have not passed this way before. I think about that right now, even in my own life. There's a level of, you know, a season of transition now, both kind of like at a church level where 
hopefully moving back into more of how things are supposed to be. We know our kids are back in school. There's transition there. But there's a level of where it's still new. There's still, we have not done this before. We have not raised kids in a hopefully post-pandemic world with all the adjustments that take place. We have not done church or ministry in this sort of new season with lingering COVID stuff and, or ramping up COVID stuff. We have not done this before. And there's a level of fear and anxiety and just uncertainty that's just, I don't know, somewhat clouding over so much of this crossing over this transition. And what do you do in those moments? Just this past week, it was, things were going great. Had a great early part of the week. And just something, like, really, looking back, just really small happened. I got a a text from someone, and I just became super discouraged about potentially what was going to happen in the future with one of the things we're involved with with ministry. And I just kind of had, like, this sense of, like, we're transitioning, there's all this adjustment, there's all this uncertainty, and like just this one little thing just threw me off. And I'm like, knowing that I'm going to be teaching on Joshua 3 and talking about transition, talking about going into seasons of uncertainty, I'm like almost having this panic in my own little brain, sitting there like in, in our living room at night with, after the kids go to bed, and I'm like, I don't want to engage right now, I don't want to even pray or open up my Bible, I just want to like tune it all out. And I just wanted to, you know, I scrolled on Twitter for who knows how long. And you have these moments, right, where it's like the scroll, 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 and then you just look at the clock, and like an hour and a half of my life has just passed away. Talk about, you know, passing over, right? Like time just passes over. And it's in those moments where what is God trying to show us in those moments of uncertainty? And I think the invitation is not to just tune out or to just disengage, but to perhaps press in a little bit more. To actually trust that as we come to him with those doubts, with those worries, with those anxieties, in these moments of uncertainty and transition, that God wants to meet us there. That God has something for us to show us, to anchor us, to to strengthen us in those moments. And so, yes, there is this sense on one level, we have not been this way before for ancient Israel and I think even for us today. But then as I was thinking about even kind of later this week, that phrase, I almost was like reading that verse over and over again. You have not been this way before. And I'm like, hold on a second, God. We have been this way before. In reference to like as things start to kind of ramp up with COVID again, and there's kind of like this lingering like, are we going to have to, you know, do the you know, the shutdown thing again, or school's going to shut down, and it's like, are we kind of like replaying what we did a year ago? Is that, is that what is going to happen again? And so there's this kind of, again, this anxiety in my brain of like, we have done this before, and I don't like it, and I don't want to go there again, and I don't want to transition back to that, because last year was really hard. And it was not fun for, on so many levels. And I think about this, this moment that personally that I feel like myself is in, perhaps a lot of you are in as well. Where you might think, yeah, we have done this before. This kind of sounds like Groundhog Day a little bit. And God, what are you going to do 
through this? What are you doing through this? What are you trying to show me in this season, in this moment of potential transition? And it's something that I might not really want to do in the, in the least. And it's trusting that God still is at work in those moments. That God still has something for us in those moments. Because look at what the text says next at the beginning of verse 5. Joshua says to the people, consecrate yourselves, meaning prepare yourselves for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. Here's Joshua to the people saying, you are Israel are about to embark into something new, something different, a season of transition. Tomorrow God is going to do something amazing amongst you. But today, prepare yourself today for what God wants to do tomorrow. And it's in those moments of uncertainty, of transition, that where, where is God inviting you to prepare your heart, your mind, your life? So that what God wants to do tomorrow, whatever it might be, something that is difficult, uncertain, whatever, that we would have an open, humble, posture, mind, heart to receive what God has for us. That I think there's something there, that there's an invitation there for us as the people of God to recognize that in those moments of uncertainty and transition, that there are an attitude, a posture, a prayer, a promise we can hold on to, a, a, an aspect of trusting God in the moment today to help us prepare for what God might have for us tomorrow or in that, that next future season of life. But here's the thing. Look at what happens next in the text. This is where it, it even gets more interesting than this. Verse 8. As for you, command the priests who bear the Ark of the Covenant, and when you come to the brink of the waters of the Jordan, you shall stand in the Jordan. Now let me pause right there. We're talking about the Jordan River out over in Israel. This time, you know, in this fray, obviously, ancient Israel at this point. Now when we're talking about the Jordan River, it's important that we have like at least some mental picture of what exactly Israel is about to cross over as far as the body of water goes. You know, a couple weeks ago, a few of our good friends, we went out to the Carmel River hoping that we're going to have an awesome time with our kids, just kind of letting them run around the, in the water. We go out out into the valley, Carmel, out in Carmel Valley, and there's this spot that we love to go to. It's somewhat kind of hidden, and we're going out there, and we are trying to get there early enough in the day so that we actually are able to have some enjoyment there without it getting so overcrowded. And so we get there. It's like, you know, it's like a miracle for us as a you know, family of five to get out before like double digits on the clock, you know. And so we make it out, and we're there, and we're, like, going in the parking lot. There's no cars there. We're like, yes, we did it. We, we beat everyone else here. So we get out. We walk. It's about, you know, from here to, like, the glass doors to where we actually want to go. And the river is completely dried up. <laughs> there is no water, right? And you're like, this is why no one else is here, right? <laughs> it wasn't because we were, like, super, you know, prompt or anything. But, you know, sometimes don't think like Carmel River, especially like in the heat of summer where there's like barely, no wa barely any water. And at this point, at some places, there's no water at all. Think more like what archaeologists and experts say, the Jordan River of today is not the Jordan River of ancient Israel. It was, in fact, much deeper, much wider, up to about a mile wide in the springtime, which it is right now in Joshua 3. So this is a massive body of water that they're about to embark or supposed to cross over. Right, there's not some just like little stream in the Carmel River where you can more or less cross on foot at any point, right? So this is, in comparison, very similar to what the previous generation faced in crossing the Red Sea, right? But notice, there is a key difference between the Red Sea experience 
and the crossing of the Jordan River experience that's about to happen. Back in Exodus 14 and 15, when Israel is about to cross the Red Sea, Israel doesn't have to do anything. God tells them, you just stand still. And the only thing Israel is supposed to do is trust, to wait, and Moses is just to reach out his staff, his hand, and the sea will part. It's an all, all an act of God at that point. But here, with this generation, there's actually a part that Israel has to play here, particularly with the priests or the leaders. And what God says through Joshua to the priests is that before the, the waters of the Jordan River part, Israel, their priests, are to get their feet wet. They're to step into the water. And it's only going to be after Israel steps into the water that then the waters will part. And all the language here, as you kind of read on in the story of the language of the waters parting, it's all mirroring, it's all copy and paste essentially from the Exodus narrative. This is a new Exodus Red Sea moment. But in this one, the key difference is this. Israel is to get their feet wet. To essentially take that step of faith. Trusting that as they get their feet, tip the, dip their toes in that cold water, that then and only then, in that moment of trust, that God is going to come through. That God is going to do what only God can do in that moment. And this, friends, I think is the difference between like a passive sort of faith and a real active faith. A faith that is actively trusting that God is at work. A faith that says that, yes, I will take that step and see what God does in response. And to see what God does in those moments. It reminds me of the story in the Gospels where there's a group of four friends. There's someone who's paralyzed or crippled. And they do everything they can to get to Jesus. They're trying to burge their way through the crowds, and they can't get their way through the crowds. So they climb up onto the roof of a house and basically tear the house down, tear a hole in the roof to lower their friend to see Jesus. They're doing everything they can to get to Jesus. And the text says in the early portions of the Gospels that Jesus, quote, saw their faith. Faith was something that Jesus saw, not something that was just in one's brain because they agreed with some doctrine or some theology point. Faith in that moment, in Mark chapter 2, is something that Jesus saw with his eyes. And here, in Joshua chapter 3, faith is something that is to be seen, demonstrated, lived out. Taking that step and trusting in that moment, God is going to do what God promised he was going to do. Get them safely across. Help them through this moment of transition. But again, just to for you skeptics slash people like me in the room, let me just kind of throw something out here. This passage in particular, Joshua chapter 3, is one of those passages, most of, you, most of you know this about myself, about five years ago, actually five years ago this month, August, was when my family and I moved down here from Washington in the hopes, believing that God had called us to move down here to start a church, to plant a church. And so I remember Joshua chapter 3 was one of the key passages that kept resonating in my brain. Take that step. Take that step. Put your, get your feet wet and trust that God is going to provide. God is going to come through and to fill in the gaps. And after about a year and a half after actually living here, it was time to actually start our first Sunday and have gathered people. And we were going we to launch. We were gung-ho ready to go. And I remember there were still some gaps in place. We didn't have everything totally in place. And Joshua chapter 3, among many other passages, was one of those passages that God kept reminding us of. Take that step. 
Get your feet wet. Trust. And so we did the best we could. We got our feet wet, and it didn't work. About a year and a half later, we closed things down. What do you do in those moments where you're doing the best you can to believe and to trust that I want to take that step? I want to, in this moment of transition, in this moment of uncertainty, take that step, get my feet wet, believe that God is going to come through, and then nothing. And it creates this really confusing space to be in. It creates this very awkward space where you're going, God, I am doing the best I can to remember your instruction, your presence, to trust what you, your word is telling me, what the spirit is saying. Where did I get it wrong? What, what, is, what am I supposed to do with that? And sure, to make you know, a long story short, there is a ton of confusion and questions and heartache and pain to process and to work through. Recognizing that very likely, yeah, there was things that I was getting wrong. There was issues in my own heart that I had to, to work through and to deal with, my own motivations, my own whatever. And there's just the plain fact that we live in a broken, fallen world. And there's an enemy out there that does not want to see the kingdom of God advance in this world. But that doesn't mean that God is not faithful. Because I reminded again of the story in the book of Acts where Paul, he's trying to go east. He's trying to proclaim the gospel. He wants to go over to the east. And he's pressing forward. He's taking those steps of faith. And in Acts chapter 16, the text says the Holy Spirit forbade him to go and redirected Paul West back to Philippi. But it was as Paul was moving forward, it was as Paul was taking those steps that God redirected him. It was as Paul was endeavoring to seek the will of God, to live into what God had, that perhaps, yeah, he had to change course direction. And for us, it was, yes, in that season of transition, God had brought us here, and we are so grateful and thankful that God did that. So friends, the only reason I'm trying to share that is because in these moments of transition, in these moments of uncertainty, there, yes, will be these times where I think we're, yes, called to take that step, but there's no guarantee that it's going to look like the way that we hoped it would look like. That God, that God might course correct. That God might lead us into a new direction, a new season. But again, this idea of getting your feet wet is something to really hold on to. What might that look like for you this morning? Now, I want to just mention a couple things here. Look at verse 10 and following with me. The text says this, And Joshua said, Here is how you shall know that the living God is among you, that he will without fail drive out from before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Jebusites. Give you 10 bucks if you can say that really fast without looking at it. Behold, the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of all the earth is passing over. Again, that same language of transition before you into the Jordan. Now, I, just, I don't want to ignore what perhaps some of the questions might raise by reading those couple verses. As far as, like, why is God driving people out of a land? You know, what, is, what, are, we, what are we to make of God, people using the name of God to conquer other people's land and take it over? So I'm not trying to ignore that. But next week, Tony's going to talk about that. Actually, we'll, we'll both actually talk about it together next week. 
So we're not ignoring that at all. There's legitimate questions with the conquest of Canaan. And how does that relate ethically for us as Christians today? So we'll talk about a little bit more next week. And then we're also going to have, at about a month from now, a seminar after church where we can just dialogue and ask questions together and work through some of these passages of how do we make sense of, you know, Jesus, love your enemies, and then Joshua, you know, destroy all of them. Like, how do those two work together, right? So we're, we're not going to ignore it at all. But just notice for our purposes today that God is the one who is going to be faithful to Israel. God is the one that without fail is going to lead the way for Israel. But then verse 13, we're reminded again of this idea of getting their feet wet. And when the soles of their feet of the priest bearing the ark rest in the waters, then, notice the language, then the waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing. And the waters coming down from above shall stand in one heap. Again, that same language is being used. Israel is called to get their feet wet and then the river will part. Then God will make a way. But as the story continues, as Israel does this, as Israel follows the ark, as it follows God's instruction, God's presence, they make it safely across the Jordan River onto the other side. They have entered into the promised land. Joshua 4, we're not going to go through all of it this morning, but Joshua 4 is this beautiful, short little chapter where Joshua takes the people, they have crossed safely over the Jordan River into the promised land, and the first thing they do is they set up this sort of memorial where they take 12 stones and they set them up as a reminder for them to when they look back at this little kind of monument-ish sort of thing, that they are reminded of God's faithfulness. That they are reminded that what God did for them in this moment in Joshua 3 and 4 is a story to be retold to future generations. Look at me with verse 21. It says this. This is Joshua 4. And he said, Joshua, to the people of Israel, when your children ask their fathers in times to come, what do these stones mean? So in reference to these 12 stones, one for each tribe as a memorial, what do these stones mean? Then you shall let your children know this. Israel passed over this Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea. And when he dried up for us until we passed over so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty and that you may fear Yahweh, the Lord your God, forever. And do you see what's happening here? God is leading Israel through this season, this moment of transition. He does this and Israel's response is to remember. Israel's response is to remember God's faithfulness now so that it will anchor them as they go forward into the future. Now, let's kind of think about this for our sort of everyday life. Right? Here's Israel. I kind of have this little circular sort of kind of chart graph sort of thing where you have this idea where we're all to some varying degree, perhaps at the top here, in a tr season of transition or uncertainty. But then there's also this level of perhaps there's these moments and places and times where we are called to get our feet wet, if you will, to take that step. And like I was saying personally from personal experience, that doesn't mean that everything's going to work out how we want it to work out when we do that, right? God's not like a vending machine, you know, obedience, and then all of a sudden everything's just perfect, right? So that's why on the bottom there, perhaps there's more uncertainty on the horizon, just to encourage you this morning. Right? 
But then there's also these moments where God has works through us in these different seasons of transition, and we're invited to in these moments and these places to also remember. Now, f- please hear me on this. This is not to be like some linear sort of thing. It's kind of goes ins and outs. So don't, don't take this as a linear sort of idea up here. But just for this morning, there's just a few questions that I have as we close our time today. Thinking about this a little bit, this transition, getting your feet wet, uncertainty, remembering. The first question is this. Where are you in this process? As you think about the story of Joshua 3 and into chapter 4 a little bit, as you sort of maybe this week process with God, where, where, where is God speaking to you? Where do you see yourself in this? Are you in this kind of in-between time where there's transition and uncertainty in your life? Where you recognize with verse 3 or 4 of Joshua 3, you have not been this way before. That it is scary. It's hard. You are not sure at all what's on the next horizon. Maybe that's you. Maybe you kind of recognize that yet you are in a transition of uncertainty and you are recognizing and remembering God's presence and his word and that you're, you're working and kind of coming to grips with that, yes, God might be inviting me to take that next step to get my feet wet a little bit. Maybe you've done that and now you're back into more uncertainty. Where might you be in this process? That's the first one. The, the second question is simply this. What might it look like for you to get your feet wet? What would be that step for you to get your feet wet? This doesn't mean you're going to, like, you know, start a nonprofit, go change the world, and, you know, you know, start a huge camp. I'm not saying anything like that. But what might it look like for you to take that step of trust? Perhaps if you are in a season, a moment of uncertainty, sometimes the biggest step of, of getting your feet wet, so to speak, is actually trusting that as you come to God, God is present and wants to be with you. Sometimes that most difficult step is actually believing the promises of God, his word, what God says about you, about your life, about your community. Sometimes that biggest step of sort of getting your feet wet is actually believing and actually trusting that as you pray, as you come to him, as you open up the word, the scriptures, that God actually does speak that God is truly present with you in those moments. And that you don't believe the lie that it's actually not worth it. You don't believe the lie that your time's better spent scrolling through Twitter like I did this past week. That you actually trust that as you take that step, even when it's uncomfortable, when it's uncertain, that it's whether it's reading a psalm or reaching out to a friend or with your close community, that that step, God will meet you there. It might not look like exactly how you want it to in the end, but friends, don't believe the lie that it's not worth it. God is always worth it, even in those small acts of faithfulness. The last question I simply have is this. What does it look like for us as a community and individually to remember? to be a people that remember God's faithfulness in the past, especially if this is you this morning, where you are faced with uncertainty and tension and anxiety, 
What does it look like for you to look back on your life and to recognize that God has been faithful in the past and he will not fail you in the present? And this means, I think, amongst a number of things, think about Israel, the Ark of the Covenant, them leading, the Ark leading them through the wilderness and then crossing, crossing the Jordan, remembering God's presence with his people, remembering God's instruction, God's word with his people, and that becoming a people that remembers God, recognizing, spending time with God, rem- abiding in the language of Jesus in the presence of God, slowing our lives down, to be a people who have this space and the time to process and to remember God's faithfulness in our lives. Being the kinds of people that have the space to slow down, to saturate ourselves in God's word, to remember his faithfulness in previous generations and in our own lives today. What does it, friends, look like for you to be a people, for us to be a people that remember? And as we transition into a time of, of worship or invite the worship team to come up. We have this morning the beautiful opportunity to do just this, to remember. To remember who Jesus is and what he's done for us. For millennia, followers of Jesus have partaken in something that we call communion or the Lord's Supper or the Eucharist. And in the language of Jesus himself, Jesus said to do this in remembrance of me. That in a world, in a culture, in a, in a season of life where there's so much uncertainty up in the air, God's people are to be a people that anchor themselves in remembering who Jesus is and what he's done for us. One of my favorite Bible teachers, he, he says something to the effect of that we are a people that often forget the things that we should remember and remember the things that we should forget. And friends, coming back to the Lord's table, the Lord's Supper, is an act of trust and remembering the most important thing about your life and my life. And friends, Jesus, when he was with his close friends the night before he was crucified, he had bread. He broke it and he said to his, his disciples, his friends, this bread is my body broken for you. Take and eat. And he had a cup of wine and he pours it and he says, friends, this is the blood of, of the new covenant, my blood poured out so that sins might be forgiven. And the scriptures say to partake of the body and the blood of Jesus to remember what he's done for us. So that the truth of what John, one of Jesus' closest friends, said that the blood of Christ cleanses us from all sin. All sin. All of the ways that we fall short, all of the ways that we perhaps don't do the things that we should do, and for all of the things that have been done to us that have not been in line with who God is and what his design and will is for us, the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. That we are a community of broken people doing the best we can by the grace of God, by the power of the Spirit, 
And it's friends, I get it. It's really easy in these moments of uncertainty and transition to go to all sorts of different things. But the invitation of Jesus in the gospel is to come back to him. To remember his goodness and his love and his forgiveness for you and for me. And to let that be the anchor. To let that be the foundation as we take that next step. As we live our lives submitted to him by the power of the spirit. So friends, as the worship team leads us in a time of worship over this next song, I want to invite you, if you're a follower of Jesus, to there'll be some folks up here to my right and left, and they'll have the bread and the cup here, to come down the center aisle, to come before one of, the, one of them up here. And they're going to say to you as you take the bread from the tray, this is the body of Jesus broken for you. And you'll take that bread and you'll dip it. And they'll say, this is the blood of Christ shed for you that sins may be forgiven. And we do this as individually you come up, but collectively we're also coming up together, saying that as a community, we want to say yes to Jesus again, to anchor our lives in a world that's so full of uncertainty on, on the presence and the goodness of Jesus himself. For those who might not feel comfortable coming up to do communion in the way that we normally done it, we'll also have some of the prepackaged communion elements over here as well or up front. F totally feel free to do that as well. But if you're uh, going to help serve communion, I want you to invite, to invite you to come up over here. There's some trays and some cups over here. But, God, but as you feel led, as the Spirit of God leads you, if you're a follower of Jesus, I want to invite you to, to have a moment to come up and to partake again of the body and blood of Jesus. So Jesus, we do thank you. We thank you for your love and your goodness to us. God, I pray for each person in this room that no matter what uncertainty or difficulty that we might be facing, God, that you would meet each person right now with a tender word of encouragement and love. God, that you would ground us in your love for us. So God, if there's anything getting in the way of your people today receiving your love, God, would you break that down now? God, help us to be a people that remember well, who remember your broken body and shed blood for us. We love you, Jesus. We thank you. We pray and ask all these things in your name. Amen.